It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, November 17th, 2011 is on the air and we're glad that you are here as well. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you, as always, on Thursday night for the Virtual Bible Study. Good to be with you as well, and we appreciate our listeners for joining us on the program as tonight as well. An interesting program planned for night one. I like this type of program that we do fairly periodically, the open forum. Sort of a house-cleaning night, Jacob. We've, yeah. We've, uh, uh, what we do is we take questions. We get questions just fairly frequently, not necessarily during the program, but during the week people will think of something, ask a question. Sometimes we use those to generate a, a whole program, but more frequently what we do is save them up until we have several that we can kind of put into a smorgasbord sermon like we're gonna uh, smorgasbord program like we're gonna do tonight. We've got eight questions uh, and they are not related. They're just on a variety of subjects. All right, uh, eight questions that are not related, so it's just sort of rapid-fire, random, no connection. And uh, it's going to be busy with eight uh, questions, but uh, we could probably slide in another one or two if you've got one you'd like to. We won't promise, but if you have another question, ask it. After I sent these out today, Jacob, somebody sent in a question, which will be too involved to deal with along with these others tonight, but we put it back in the stack of stuff, and we'll try to address it at some point in the future. All right. Look, look forward to hearing from you on the phone, 877-381-4567. Email questions at collegeview.com. Join in the chat room with other listeners if you'd like to participate in the program tonight. All right, Jacob. Earlier today we sent out our update as to what our topic would be tonight. And I'm not going to take the time here to read all the questions in advance. People would forget what they are from one to the next anyway. So, But we sent out these eight questions. They come from various listeners over the last several weeks or more. And uh, we're just going to go through them and see what we can do. We got an email from, well, let's just start with the first one, Jacob. We we got an email from Kent who asked a couple of questions concerning the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Uh, Kent was in a Bible study, and these questions were brought up. Kent called me, and I was uh, busy. I said, send your question, and we'll talk about it. Yeah. The first part of the question, in Acts 20, is there a difference between the breaking of bread in verses 7 and 11? And then the second part of the question, also, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on Thursday night. Why don't we follow a Thursday night pattern? I think I'll deal quickly with the second part. And those two questions are related, because if Acts 20, verse 7 is not the Lord's Supper, then we don't have any uh, example of first century Christians partaking of the Lord's Supper on Sunday, which it says they did in Acts 20, verse 7. And then, therefore, it would be taking it on Thursday is the the next Okay. All right. Well, I was going to deal with that second part first, but let's don't. Let's go ahead and deal it with it in the order that Kent asked it. Okay. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, let me real quickly read the passage, and then we'll comment. We've got a couple of emails. We're looking for more responses from you. Uh, let's see what we're saying. Have we got problems? Uh, no, we're good. Somebody is saying they're not Yeah, not we're, good. All, we're, all, we're all good now. Okay. Yeah, we've got, uh, yeah we're, we're all cool. We're cool. Okay. Acts 20, beginning verse 6. It says, We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, there's verse 7, the disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread. Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech till midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together, and there sat in a window a young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep, and fell down from the third loft, and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, uh, we've got some email responses to that. I, I studied this a while back, and I've got some notes here. 
uh, in which I suggest to you that there are two different breakings of bread there. The meaning is different. The meaning is different. It, yeah. it obviously happened twice, but you're saying it's two different types yeah. of events. That, that expression, breaking of bread, is an idiom that can have reference either to a common meal or to the Lord's Supper. Now, in regards to the Lord's Supper, it's used that way, I believe, in Acts 2.42, 1 Corinthians 10.16, 1 Corinthians 11.23-26. Now, let me show you what I think is the difference there in Acts chapter 20 in regards to the Lord's Supper. The context implies that Paul waited in the city of Troas for seven days in order to be present at this assembly. Why wait if the if this was just a common meal, okay. which they would have eaten on any day and, and would eat on any day of the week? The disciples, furthermore, the disciples had specifically come together for the purpose of this breaking of bread. But Paul, in, a, in an epistle written prior to this time, had condemned the concept of the church coming together to eat a common meal. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 20. And 1 Corinthians 11 was written prior to Acts 20. Exactly. Okay. So, prior to this event, Paul had already written a church and said, don't be coming together for the eating of common meals. So Paul would not then have violated his own teaching in the matter, and therefore the church coming together, in verse 7, to break bread, necessarily is a reference to the Lord's Supper. Okay. Now, what about the second occurrence of breaking bread in Acts, in Acts 20? That verse 11, you know, he preached till midnight, Eutychus fell asleep, fell out the window, and Paul that's revived sort of, That's sort of what break up your, your train of thought in your okay. sermon. After that, after midnight, yeah. after Eutychus had fallen out of the window... Then it says they came up again and broke bread and ate and talked a long while. So what about the second occurrence there? That breaking of bread, I believe, is eating of common food. The assembly had already been broken up because of the death and miraculous revival of Eutychus. The timing of this eating was sometime after midnight. Mm -hmm. Now, that being the case, whether you're keeping time as the Romans did or as the Jews did, either way, that would have been Monday, not Sunday. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, so that breaking of bread didn't take place on the first day of the week. Oh, that's right. All right. The meeting of the church, now dismissed, it likely occurred in a private home where common foodstuffs would have been available for those who normally lived there and ate their meals there. Paul did this eating without violating the previously mentioned prohibition of the church coming together to eat common meals. And if you notice carefully... Paul is the only one mentioned who consumed the food in that second breaking of bread. This was in anticipation of his leaving the city within a matter of hours to continue his journey. It would be impossible to prove that any other person ate a single morsel of food and therefore impossible to use this text to demonstrate that the whole church was involved in eating a common meal as an official or sponsored activity of the collective body. Okay. Those were my notes on that passage. So, uh, right. so I think my answer to the first part of Kent's question is that, yes, there is a difference, and I think several notable distinctions can be made between the breaking of bread in verse 7 and the breaking of bread in verse 11. The first is the Lord's Supper. <coughs> yes. The second would be the common meal that at least it, Paul ate. And it, and it chokes me up to speak. As it, I is, it's, it is quite a disturbing d- discussion. And uh, here's what uh, Mike in Orleans, Indiana says. He says, uh, concerning Acts 20, verse 7 and 11, two points he would point out. Number one, there may not be two acts of breaking bread in this story at all. They came together to break bread, the reason for the assembling. He says there's no record that uh, they had done so by the time Eutychus falls out the window. It is possible their worship was interrupted by this event. When Paul returns, he then breaks bread. One or two acts of breaking bread, the text is not clear, he says. i got a problem with that, though, Mike, because it would have been after midnight. It was Monday, not Sunday, when that second breaking of bread took place. All right. Number two, he says, if there are two acts of breaking bread, the Lord's Supper has taken place in verse 7. And then, if this is true, verse 11 would be a common meal reasoning. What purpose would there be for Paul to partake of the Lord's Supper twice in one assembly? I think that's right. All right, now, uh, okay, so okay, there's your answer to that. Okay, Chris in Atlanta says, from my understanding of the context, verse 7 refers to the Lord's Supper in worship, and verse 11 refers to a common meal. Verse 7 speaks of the disciples as a group coming together on the first day of the week, breaking bread, and verse 11 speaks of only Paul breaking bread and eating. Uh, then he mentions the second part. We see, by example, Lord's Supper was observed on the first day of the week. But I think he makes the point we were making earlier. Verse 11, the only one that you can confirm ate anything at verse 11 was Paul himself. All right. Uh, he, uh, Patrick in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, says that uh, he's uh, checked his uh, copy of Young's Analytical Concordance of the Bible 
Uh, and verses 7 and 11 in Acts chapter 20 both refer to the same Greek word. He says they both refer to the Lord's Supper. And he give, but they are, and they are the same word. And he gives a whole list. I won't take time to read the list. Thanks, uh, Patrick, for doing all this work of research. Uh, the Greek word is found numerous times. And what we have to point out is that that, that, that word, supper, can refer to a common meal. It's not a different word. If I said, come over for supper tomorrow night, or on Sunday we partake of the Lord's Supper, I'd be using the same word, both in English and Greek. And so it's a common word, and so therefore the context has to bear out whether or not is talking about the eating common meal or eating of the Lord's Supper. Now, he does add this. As for when, he's and Catholic, uh, Patrick is a Catholic, he says, as for when the Eucharist, is what he would call the Lord's Supper, is to be celebrated, several examples show that Sunday, or the first day of the week, is the foremost day on which it is to be celebrated. The early Christians actually celebrated it every day, he says. This is seen primarily in Acts 2, uh, 2 verses 42 through 47, which explicitly states, they practice this form of worship daily, we also see a specific example of it being celebrated for two consecutive days in Acts chapter 20. Well, see, I would disagree with him on that. I believe in Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and breaking of bread and prayers. That was the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Verse 46 of that says, uh, how to say? Uh, yeah, breaking bread from house to house. Gladness of heart. They broke, see, let me read. I don't want to misquote it. Acts 2.46 says they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. In other words, that breaking of bread did not take place in the assemblies which were were being held on the temple grounds. That breaking of bread took place from house to house. That's common meal. So I think in Acts 2 we got verse 42, the Lord's Supper, where it talks about the Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, and Breaking of Bread and in Prayers. Uh, that's Lord's Supper, verse 46, is their common meals, which were eaten from house to house. Again, same expression. You're going to have to let the context tell you whether it's talking about a common meal or the Lord's Supper. All right. And uh, guest 203 in the chat room says he could have had to wait because he was waiting for the next ship to leave in the direction he was headed, not because he was waiting for the first day of the week to assemble with others. Uh well, it doesn't say he changed ships there, so I don't know. You, you'd be reading into something. You'd be reading something. But again, into- if it was just a common meal, why wait seven days? You could do that. They would be. They would have been doing that every day. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that, and that may not be the strongest part of the argument, but I mean, it, it seems clear that he tarried there long enough to be able to be with them on the first day of the week. All right. Uh, now, quickly, what, we're almost to the break. Boy, we got we one question. Oh, this the is second part of the question. Jesus is to the Lord's Supper on Thursday. I believe that's correct. Bef- yes. the, the night he was betrayed. It wasn't and- on Sunday anyway you slice it. That's right. Why don't we follow that pattern? Well, m- my basic argument would be Jesus told us what to do. He didn't tell us when to do it. Yep. And Acts 20, verse 7 tells us when that was practiced in the early church under the leadership of the inspired apostles, the Lord's Supper was observed on the first day of the week. Right. We know that was that was done with apostolic approval. Paul was there when that happened. That's right. Uh, Mike agrees. He says at the time Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, this was under the Old Covenant, and the New Testament was not in effect yet, Hebrews 9, 16 through 18. This was also not the church doing this. The church had not been purchased by Christ with his blood, Acts 20, verse 28. Then, then he gets a long list, and we don't have time to read it all. Thanks again uh, to you. Uh, Mike, for that long research, he gives 21 reasons why the first day of the week is significant in the early church, uh, uh, all making an argument about the significance of that first day of the week. Again, that in and of itself <coughs> wouldn't prove anything, but it does show that uh, there is some significance to the first day of the week. All right. Uh, we gotta, We can't even get into the next question. No, we better take a break and get back to the second question and move faster when we get back. All right. Uh, oh, quick question. Here's, here's something to fill up the time before our break. Uh, guess 223. Suppose a tribe somewhere in the world had a different calendar system and had four days in a week. Does that mean they would still take of it according to the first day of their week? I don't know. Well, they'd be wrong for having a four-day week. <laughs> I, I just simply don't, I don't know. Somewhere. I don't know how you would answer that. We know... We know that dating way back into the Old Testament times, God's people counted seven days. Under the Old Testament, the seventh day was the day of rest, the Sabbath. We know under the New Testament, they kept counting days the same way. So if someone counted days differently, I I think they'd probably be obligated to try and jive their calendar with the biblical calendar. All right. Now, what if the argument may have been made, what what if 
the days got shifted? What if our Saturday was really their Monday? Well, I think I think we can prove historic. I mean, I think we've got enough history to confirm that we're we're operating on the same rotation. Okay. That that they were in the first century. I think we've got enough history that we can confirm that. Uh, so again, I don't know. I don't know how you would deal with that. Question. All right. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. Nick says there's an inference involved with why they tarried at Troas, but immediately after mentioning that they tarried, the assembly uh, to break bread is mentioned. Luke would, could have easily have given a reason for tarrying, but instead moves immediately to their assembly. So he's saying it, it infers that it was to tarry for that meeting. Okay. All right. We'll take a break. And, and Dean says God established a seven-day week. I mean, no, that's, that's from the beginning. That's true. That's from the beginning. So, yeah. All right. Well, so are there actually tribes that have a four-day week? I never heard of it. I don't know. Oh. How do you get in a weekend if you have a four-day week? I guess you only work two days? Then you get your well, hey, That'd be something, a four-day work week and a three-day weekend. There you, oh, there you go. Okay, we'll take a break, and uh, we'll get your comments on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Do you remember when elders, deacons, preachers, Bible class teachers, and all church members had a strong commitment to the Word? Do you recall when you could always count on book, chapter, and verse preaching from the pulpit? Can you think back to a time when Christians were known as people of the book because they knew their Bible so well? We're trying to be like a church you read about in the Bible, and we're still doing the same things that you remember from way back when. Are you longing for a return for the way things used to be? Come and visit. See for yourself at the College View Church of Christ. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Many people ignore God and then blame Him for the chaos that results. You can fool others... You can even fool yourself, but you can never fool God. Don't confuse God's patience with his final response. Do the math. Count your blessings. Man, I wish I'd said that. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The virtual Bible study continues. And we're back uh, on the Virtual Bible Study, taking uh, your random questions tonight. It doesn't have to be uh, anything connected to what we've been talking about so far. In fact, we're changing gears, so if you'd like to change gears with us and send in your question, send it to questions at collegeview.com or give us a call. It's toll-free, and the line is open now at 877-381-4567. Real quickly, another part of that question uh, that we, we touched on, Nick in the chat room asked, uh, this is Nick in Washington State, I believe. He says, rather than speculate about a tribe having a four-day week, why not speculate on whether Luke is using Jewish or Roman time? It doesn't matter. Since it doesn't really matter. Because at midnight, the middle of the night, by Roman time, that would have started Monday. Jewish time, Monday would have started at sunset that evening. So it would have been Monday. It wouldn't have been the first day of the week under any timekeeping program. Um but I think I would argue that almost certainly Acts 20 is dealing with uh, Roman timekeeping methods. They were in a Roman city. They were among Gentiles. They weren't with Jews. Mm, good point. Okay. All right, let's go to number two, and this is from Stephen. Uh, Stephen asks, what constitutes a vow? Can we ever be forgiven for breaking a vow? Can we ever replace a vow with another vow? Mm, that's a good question, one we haven't talked about, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, uh, Patrick went into some length in defining uh, a vow. Let's see here. That's Michael. Was it Michael? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to that. Uh, read that, Jacob. Okay, Mike uh, says, I'm interested in the discussion. I do not feel many clearly understand the subject, myself included. I eagerly anticipate other responses. Chris had a similar comment, and uh, he says, uh, he promises, I honestly have not studied this too much, so I will pass on this question. Uh, Michael has done some uh, studying. He says, I once did an extensive study on the difference between the definition between an oath and a vow. I found no significant difference. In short, Thayer is essentially essentially, uh, to pledge or promise something that is a pretty broad definition. Some have read Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, and insisted that all vows or oaths are forbidden in any circumstance for the Christian. When that comment is made, I usually smile and would like to ask them when they intend to repent of their sin and confess it before the church because, ironically, most of those making this argument are or have been married. Are marriage vows sinful? I think not. I do not believe in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37 means we cannot take any vow or oath under any circumstances. I believe Jesus is simply teaching us to live life in such a way 
so as no vows need to be taken. Our word is our vow. If you say you will do something, do it. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one, Matthew 5:37. We know the devil is the father of the lie, and those who lie are like him, John 8:44. If oaths and vows are sinful, Paul took an oath when he testifies before God who do not lie, Galatians 1:20. Paul took a vow in Acts 18, verse 18. Christian brethren had taken a vow in Acts 21, verse 23. Marriage vows would be sinful. Even becoming a Christian is taking an oath before God in the sense that you are going to obey and serve him. Can we hey, ever- stop there. Stop okay. there a minute. All okay. right. Uh, before we read the rest of that, I, I think there is a difference. I, I would slightly disagree with Mike on this because I, and he's gone to the question of taking judicial oaths, which I think is a separate question altogether. Mm-hmm. I take a vow to simply be a promise to do something. Whereas, like a judicial oath, as he, he mentioned, you know, uh, certain judicial oaths before God, I lie. Uh, that's that's just simply affirming that you're telling the truth about something. I think right. I, I think the use of oaths was to conf- was to try and confirm I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Whereas a vow was a promise to do something. The oath was stipulated by you were swearing by something. Yeah. And, and a vow was simply a commitment or a, a obligating yourself to perform something. So mm-hmm. I think that there is a difference. He's brought up the question of judicial oaths, which is not, I'd really rather not get into that right now because that's a deeper subject that we, we have talked about. We have talked about, we can talk about it again. But I, I think there is a difference. I think a, a vow is simply promising that you're going to do something, to perform some act or deed or whatever. Uh, and now, if, if you, uh, understand that, then there were instances in which, even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, for instance, in Acts 18.18, 18, had taken a vow. You remember the mm-hmm. statement there? He was on his way back to Jerusalem, Acts 18, verse 18, when, and Paul, after his ter- after he tarried there a good while, took leave took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. There's always been an argument, and I was doing a little reading on that even today, as to whether it was Paul or Aquila who had taken that vow. It doesn't really matter. They were both Christians. Okay. They're not condemned for doing so. All right. uh, and the vow involved not shaving or, or cutting the hair of the head for some period of time. This was not the Nazarite vow, for instance, because the Nazarite vow had to be concluded at the temple. The hair was cut off and burned on the altar. That's not what this vow was. It was a different vow of some kind. Okay. But uh, it was a promise to do something, to follow through with some commitment. Now, the, the question, though, from Stephen was not if the vow was sinful or not. You've proven that it is acceptable for a Christian to take a vow. The question is, what constitutes a vow? I think uh, Stephen's concerned. Maybe he's made a vow and I think it's a he promise. Doesn't know. I think it's a promise to do something. If okay. you promise to do something, and and the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, suggest that you ought to keep your word. Uh, in Ecclesiastes five five, better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. In other words, don't make the promise if you're not going to follow through with it, is is the idea. And so, uh, now, the question is, can we be forgiven of breaking a vow? Now, I agree with Mike. He he references the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So you could be forgiven for breaking a vow. That's the answer to that question. Yeah, and... uh, uh, quickly, let me go to Patrick. Sent me another email from Birmingham. Uh, he says, "Can we be forgiven of breaking about?" He gives he gives uh, uh, from the Catholic Encyclopedia. See, a vow of similar circumstances. A vow has similar circumstances to an oath. A vow is a promise made to God. An oath is an invocation to God to witness the truth of a statement. Uh, he says. And then he gives historically frequent instances of special vows in the Old Testament, generally in the form of offerings conditionally made to God, offerings of animals and so forth. Uh, He says, can we be forgiven for breaking a vow? The only sin about which is explicitly stated that it will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is traditionally interpreted to mean refusal to repent. It should be realized, though, that it is a sin of presumption to break a vow or commit some other sin, saying, I know it's a sin, but God will forgive me. So, yes, one can be forgiven, but forgiveness does not mean that there will not be suffering as a result of sinning. Just as with oaths, vows should not be made hastily. It is better not to make a vow than to vow and not do it. Uh, and then he says, he quotes the Catholic Encyclopedia, all obligation ceases when the fulfillment of the vow becomes impossible or harmful, or the reason for the vow ceases to exist. 
that's Catholic encyclopedia. I don't know where I would go to the Bible to get that same confirmation. Well, there but, is a, there is a, there is something parallel to that, and uh, Mike references it in his email. Uh, read Patrick's uh, thing about it being impractical to keep the vow. He says all obligation ceases when the fulfillment of the vow becomes impossible or harmful or the reason for the vow ceases to exist. From That's from the Ency- Catholic Encyclopedia. Well, Mike references Jephthah and his rash vow in Judges chapter 11, verse 39. And I don't. I think we may have talked... I don't know if we've ever talked about it here on the program or not. But uh, can we ever replace a vow with another vow? Jephthah did not seem to think so. He kept his vow to sacrifice his daughter. Of course, what this means, killing or causing her to remain childless, is and will remain a matter of debate. Uh, Mike believes she remained childless. I do, too. I believe um, that she was given perpetually to God's service. But regardless. Regardless, he kept the vow. It, it, it was a hurtful thing for him to have to do. It was hurtful to they, her. They, they, they bemoaned her, her childlessness. Yeah, and, and yet they still did it. They, uh, and he says, if we can merely replace one vow with another, what value does a vow really carry? If I swore to be faithful to my wife, for example, but I allowed to later, I'm allowed to later change my mind, how much did the original vow actually mean? I think that's, that's a good observation. And he has spent three pages on answering two questions, and he ran out of time. And we're running out of time fast, yeah, Jacob. Yeah, but uh, quickly, Je- Jeff uh, is behind the controls tonight. Jeff has a question or a comment about uh, the breaking of vows. Jeff, uh, what was your uh, comment you posted in the chat room? Oh, I was pointing out um, in, the mar- in the marriage relationship um, that there is a vow made right. to leave to one another. Right. But in the case of fornication, we understand from scriptures that there can be a divorce, and the guilty okay. party can be put away. Does but, that mean that there's a breaking of the vow? Yes, there is a breaking of the vow, but my question is, does that mean they could never be forgiven? Okay, well, uh, who broke the vow? The person who is guilty of fornication is the one who broke the vow, not the innocent spouse. Right, I think that's right. I believe they can also be forgiven. Oh, well, that's there's true. some. Well, you're right. You could be forgiven. The right. the, the, the guilty spouse could still be forgiven. Yeah, I, I think right. the answer to that part of the question is, can you ever be forgiven of breaking a vow? Yes, I, I think you're right, Jeff. But I think if, if you repent, you can be forgiven of any sin. I don't know there's any sin that you can't be forgiven of if you repent. I would agree with Pat, Patrick's analysis. The only sin you can't be forgiven of is is referred to as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, rejecting the Holy Spirit's work, refusing to accept the truth that the Holy Spirit revealed in the Word of God, and therefore not complying with the conditions of forgiveness that are revealed in the Word of God. Well, uh, long story short, and we need to wrap Stephen's question up, but we do need to be careful about what we what we commit to. And that's exactly. a good reminder for us. That, right. That uh, when we say we're going to do something, we need to do it. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Uh, 877-381-4567. Guest 901 is in the chat room. Hi, I'm using a Mac. Is there any way I can listen to this? Well, you can. Via Ustream. Did you point him to Ustream? No, I didn't. You can get Windows Media Player for Mac, but if you uh, also you can check it out on Ustream if you want to watch it live, uh, and then it will be posted. Uh, we And just as a, a sort of an FYI, we post our audio approximately 10 minutes after the conclusion of the program, and our video is posted usually by Friday morning if you want to watch the video at Blip TV, and it's also posted on our website. And we, it's, about, we, we it's immediately are, posted at, at Ustream as we well. We are the virtual Bible study on Ustream, right? That's, that's right. Yeah, I was just telling him on the chat room to go there. Okay. okay. All, right. All right, great. we we got to take a break. I know you started another question. hope we dealt with that thoroughly enough. Uh, can, well, we didn't deal with can you replace one vow with another. Patrick said, uh, as for replacing a vow with another, it would seem that one could do so at least as long as the new vow does not negate the former vow. And I don't know that that would really, I mean, I understand what he's saying, but I don't really know if that'd be the idea of replacing uh, a vow, one vow with another one. Um, I'm more inclined to think that you can't change a vow and say, well, you know, I promised I'd give you $10. I I made that commitment, but now I only want to give you five. Uh And what, what good would the first promise be if the second one could negate it? Yeah. So I, I agree with I agree yeah. with Mike's analysis on that. All right, let's uh, take a break. When we get back, we've got to cover three questions in the next 15 minutes. Don asked, what were the real reasons the Jews did not accept Jesus? What traits would he have needed to display in order to be accepted? And if he had acted in uh, the way he is portrayed by most churches today, would the Jews have accepted him? 
That's an interesting comment from Don. I think that's a great question. In fact, I was tempted to make that a, a whole program question. Yeah, it's close to another question that was posed by Don that we did a uh, program on probably about five or six years ago. Who killed Jesus? Or would the, would religious people today kill Jesus Is was Don's original question. This is very similar to that, and uh, that is a good question. That would make a good sermon. Uh, number four, we're going to ask, is there authority for a local church anniversary? That's interesting. And number five, what does the Bible teach about gluttony? We've got to talk about all those next 15 minutes. We're not going to get done. All right, we'll hurry. All right, we'll take a break, get this week's bullet point, and go fast on the other side. Uh, jump in and hold on and uh, give us a call. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. We continue right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. When Paul preached his famous sermon on Mars Hill in Athens, his teaching received three distinct reactions. Notice, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. That's Acts 17, verses 32 through 34. Do you see what happened there? Some rejected the teaching immediately. Others procrastinated or withheld judgment and did nothing. But some enthusiastically accepted the truth and acted upon it. The same three reactions are in evidence to this day, even among members of the Lord's Church. Consider this scenario. The preacher preaches a hard sermon that exposes sin and worldliness. It's one of those sermons that steps on toes and hits close to home. Some Christians will grow angry. The things taught suggest the need to change, and they're not willing to do so. They are happy to hear preaching on things they already agree about, but if a lesson contradicts their existing views or practices, they get mad. They are like those in Athens who mocked. Some other brethren hear this same sermon, and while it plainly shows that there are things they need to change in their life, they postpone any action. These are the ones who commend the preachers they go out the door saying, I really needed that, or you really stomped on my toes today, and yet they do nothing. They continue in their former ways, basically saying, we will hear thee again of this matter. Thank God there are those who are tender-hearted, those who are always looking to bring their lives into closer harmony with the will of God. These are the folks who, upon hearing the truth, respond by putting it into practice in their lives. If it means changing from what they previously believed, they will do so. Their commitment is to the Lord. Serving Him is their first priority. May their tribe increase. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study, and we hope you'll tell others about the program. We're always open to your feedback concerning topics for discussion and suggestions as how we can make the program more effective. Drop us a line at questions at collegeview.com or call us toll-free at 877 877- Three eight one four five six seven. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians three seventeen. Now back to the program. Oh no, you're getting called on your bullet points. Guest two twenty three says it seems to me these bullet points are being recycled. I know I've no. heard that exact bullet point in an earlier virtual Bible study. No, I just recorded that. You afternoon. recorded it, but you may have re-recorded something that you've already done because I do remember the wording may their tribe increase so that may that may well, that's ring just a like, that's a common expression well, I use that oh, frequently so you're, re, you're recycling phrases yeah. but not the entire bullet I don't bullet. think I heard I, but that 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 just played was recorded just a few hours ago this afternoon so guess 223 is our on the mark on the on the spot there yeah, you bet, you, they're going to keep you on your toes yeah. don't go cheating them out of a bullet point <laughs> right number four uh, number three on the list of questions tonight from Don what were the real reasons the Jews did not accept Jesus? What traits would he have needed to display in order to be accepted? And if he had acted the way he is portrayed by most churches today, would the Jews have accepted him or would they have crucified him? Uh, I think uh, Chris makes a good observation. He said, actually, not all the Jews rejected him. The first Christians were Jews, but most were expecting a king to come in and save them from Roman rule. I think that's a point that needs to be stressed because we do get the impression that all the Jews turned on Jesus, but... Actually, it was the Jewish leadership that mm-hmm. led to the crucifixion mm-hmm. of Jesus. In fact, as you study, pay attention to the timing of events that happened when Jesus was arrested, the the, the sham trials that he was uh, paraded through. 
That all happened under the cover of darkness in the wee small hours of the morning. He was on the cross by 9 o'clock in the morning. It needed to be that way or else the populace the, the, would have. The popular masses would have rioted because Jesus was still very popular among the common people. It was the Jewish leadership. And they did their dirty work overnight, and they had him on the cross by 9 o'clock in the morning and didn't give the, the masses of people a chance to express their their will concerning Jesus. So. And I've, it was the Jewish leadership primarily that rejected and Jesus. And I think Don may be referring to the Jews here as being those Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious. I think Chris is right, that they were looking for a political king, a physical political king who would who would relieve them of the oppression of the Roman rule. They wanted to establish Israel as a nation again. That's what... and and. You know, even the disciples of Jesus somewhat misunderstood that. Do you remember after Jesus died and was resurrected in Acts chapter 1, just before his ascension, uh, they uh, they asked Jesus, uh, says verse 6, when they were therefore come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So I think even among Jesus' own disciples, there was some misunderstanding of what his purposes were. Yes. So, that certainly factored in as to why the Jews rejected him, why he was crucified. He didn't meet their expectations. They're preconceived. Yeah. And uh, what they wanted in a, in a Messiah as well. And along those lines to his latter question, what traits would he need to display in order to be accepted? That would be one. And uh, that's one that religious people today would have a problem with, that we people make up their mind as to what they want God to tell them or to teach them, and uh, they don't want to accept it unless it's what they want. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and and furthermore, uh, they wanted they wanted a Messiah back then who would say that they were good, that everything right. was okay, just as it is. Right. You, you all are doing fine. You don't need to change a thing. Right. People today want to hear that. Right. So if so, to the part of Don's question, if he had acted in the way he is portrayed by most churches today, would the Jews have accepted him? Yeah, maybe so, because most people today. Are are representing Jesus as this uh, uh, kind, over, over uh, overwhelmingly a, loving being that would never bad. say anything bad right. bad about anybody. Wouldn't want you to feel uncomfortable. Don't say no. anything and accept people completely as they are. Require no change. Expect nothing of them. No sacrifice. That's the way many denominations are teaching Jesus today. And I think Don's got an interesting point. If Jesus had been presented himself in that fashion in the first century, he, he may very well have, have been accepted by those Jews. That's an interesting comment, and it reminds me of a program we did not too long ago, Unpopular Sayings of Jesus. Remember that one? Yeah. And that might, uh, that, that, he was unpopular then with those, he'd, uh, with those statements, and he'd be unpopular today as well. Exactly right. So yeah. I think real interesting thought, Don, uh, and it deserves more amplification and expansion than we have time to do tonight. But I, I think that's a neat concept. I'll, I'll spend some more time thinking we about it. We might reference you, Don, to uh, the October 22nd, 2009 edition, Unpopular Sayings of Jesus. And uh, I think it's along those lines. I do appreciate uh, that angle. tonight. All right, good. We can go a little quicker on the next one, I think. Yeah. The, the, the next one is from Juan, and I don't know where Juan's from. Uh, he, he didn't say. He has a, a name that makes me think that he must be from some foreign Asian, location, Asian perhaps. It's uh, not. It's not a. It's not a Hispanic or a no, Spanish it, spelling it, of Juan. It's J H U N. Let me see here. Uh, yeah. So uh, his last name is Batista. Well, that that's is, sort of Spanish. That is Hispanic. So yeah. maybe he's maybe he's anglicizing the spelling of his name Juan. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, he just asked the question, is there authority for a local church anniversary? A local church anniversary, is there authority for that? I guess that would be sort of like this church has been here for... 25 years. 50 years. Hmm, interesting. Uh, my response to that is that I don't think it's necessarily wrong to set aside certain times for certain things. In other words, we might have a special assembly in which we say... We're going to devote our whole time to praying for this sick member. Or this congregation. Yeah. The elders and the members. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong to set aside a day for a... Right there, Jeff. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to set aside a day for a, a special observance of something, as long as that something is... Uh, 
you know, biblical. You, you, you can't set it aside for something that the Bible's... In other words, you can't set it aside to do something the Bible doesn't authorize you doing. But if you just say, this Sunday marks 25 years that the church has been meeting in this location, and what we're going to do is we're going to try to remember some of the important things that we're expected to do as we begin our next 25 years or something. No, just using the, the anniversary of that as, a, as something to motivate us. What about balloons and uh, inflatables mm-hmm. in the parking lot and uh, popcorn after the Now you talk about things not authorized, so okay. that's what you can't do. So, so you're saying within the parameters of things that are authorized? Yeah. Okay. But, okay. Uh, you, there'd, be some, there'd be some caution in that judgment. There'd be some caution because you would not want to take the focus away from worshiping God. Right. You exactly. wouldn't want to begin to worship, you know, church or exactly. the, the local congregation uh guest 574 says homecoming is what some denominations call it i think that's right and and he says that it, they have a big dinner which is not authorized so yeah. i think it's a, i think it's a two-sided coin it's not wrong to recognize certain situations and pay attention to those in our assembly as we worship god but it's wrong to do things that are not authorized okay so you you would say use caution there yeah, yeah. And I'd say you need a little more detail before you can say I, I, I would disagree with that or I would uh, agree with it. All right, number five is going to take a little bit more time, and uh, it's uh, pertinent because a week from tonight, a uh, week from today, people may be encouraged to partake in this sin. What does the Bible say about gluttony from Jack? Okay, well, <clears throat> I dug up some old notes on this, Jacob, and I don't know if we got anybody who's commenting on that by email. Uh, did Chris say anything about that? In his? Yeah, Chris Chris needs to get uh, bonus points because he's the only one who answered all eight questions tonight. He said many verses in Proverbs condemn it. Gluttony is a symptom of lack of self-control. We're told in several verses to be self-controlled. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Acts chapter 24, verse 25, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. These passages speak of temperance, perhaps in your version or translation. The idea of being under self-control. I think, I think that's the, the the best answer right there, Chris. you got to exercise self-control. Christians are expected to control themselves. And that's about all things, and eating would be included in that. that that's, that's right. Um, the word gluttony means to eat too much, and in Old Testament it was considered a sign of an undisciplined person and was often linked with drunkenness. Yeah, I guess 2.33 says gluttony and wine-bibber are always used together. Yeah, uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, the parents had this son who was disobedient. They took him to the elders of the city. This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard, and all the men of the city shall stone him with stones so that he dies. Uh, Proverbs 23, beginning verse 20, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Both of those things suggesting lack of self-control. Mm-hmm. In the New Testament, uh, it was a sign of sinfulness. Uh, Jesus uh, said, Luke 7, beginning verse 31, The Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are likened to children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped to you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Now, that's not true about Jesus, but that's what they were accusing him of. They were accusing him of being a sinful man. He wasn't, but they were accusing him of that. Yeah. And in that description that they falsely pinned on him right they called him a gluttonous man mm-hmm. uh, i really think that it suggests a wrong sense of priorities uh, jesus said john six twenty seven, labor not for the meat which perisheth but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the son of man shall give you luke 12 beginning verse 22 he said to his disciples therefore i say to you take no thought for your life what ye shall eat neither for the body what ye shall put on the life is more than meat the body is more than raiment Where's your focus? And you know, so it's uh, gluttony. I think was, as Chris aptly said, is clearly not dealing with the self-control issue, and it's putting a focus on that other than what we should have our focus on. Yes, nine hundred one says gluttony is a sin of self-control, but even more a sin of idolatry, placing your love of food over your love of God, letting food please you more. Okay, so it is. A, it is a concern and an issue. Especially in our society, where we have so much, and uh, you know, some 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 places even today, 
you couldn't be a glutton if you tried, probably, because of this, the abundance of food. But in America, certainly, we do have uh, the temptation that we need to be careful. Uh, and uh, let uh, not the, those in the audience who are thin and not overweight think that they cannot uh, be guilty of the sin. It does Your, your physical size does not uh, make you immune to this sin. Of gluttony, and so we need to be careful about that. Have we got a problem in the chat room. Uh, suddenly, we've, we've lost all our logins. Oh, oh, we have. I don't know. Some kind of uh, glitch there, maybe on the other end of the line. I still see them, but it only says a few are online. So we'll see about that. Yeah, it looks like we might have a problem there. If you're listening to us uh, and you're in the chat room, let us know if you're still there. We've lost you on this end, so we're not getting comments right but now. But I think we're still going out. Uh, that looks to be working still. Okay. Uh, there's, okay. Oh. Okay, all right. Um, well, refresh, uh, you'll lose them all, Jeff, if you refresh them. So. Okay, all right. Now, we've got to take a break, and when we get back, three more questions, and maybe we can slide yours in as well. Uh, Bob asks, what does it mean when it says the sons of God married the daughters of women? And daughters, or daughters of men. men sons Genesis, of, yeah. yeah, okay. Sons of God married the daughters of men, yeah, Genesis 6. Daughters usually are of women. And uh, number seven, uh, can we celebrate as one congregations in, in hundreds of different places via Facebook, et cetera? I guess that would be like a virtual worship assembly. We're having the virtual Bible study. Can we have a wor- virtual uh, worship. A worship assembly? Interesting. Now, uh, number eight, we need some eerie UFO music here. What does the Bible say about life elsewhere in the universe? Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Go for that. All right. We'll take that on the other side of the break. Uh, we'll go to the top of the hour right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN. It's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 1.28. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. I'm Arthur Haynes from Cullioca, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the virtual Bible study. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. We're glad you thought about joining us tonight, and we appreciate you being on the other end of the line. We'll remind you this program is brought to you by College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. If you're in the Columbia, Tennessee area, maybe traveling through, we would encourage you to stop in and worship with us Sunday mornings at 9.30, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock, and Wednesday evenings at 7. Or if you're not in the Columbia, Tennessee area, but you wonder about what we believe or practice, there are some ways you can find out more about us. You can find out what we believe and practice by looking at our archives in the Virtual Bible Study at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Visit our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, for more information about us. And if you have any questions you'd like to maybe speak with us in person, you can call us anytime, 877-381-4567. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the Virtual Bible Study, like we're doing tonight, you can send that in at any time. Or if you have a topic you think might make a good program, an entire hour maybe spent discussing that. Send that in as well. We'd like to hear those suggestions from our listeners. Uh, uh, guest 233 said, I just thought you could compare gluttony and fasting. They must be opposite of each other. One involves taking away. The other requires you to fill yourself with it. I think that's an interesting point. You fast. Well, if, if We've studied fasting oh. before on the virtual Bible. You fast in order to be able to focus on spiritual things. And so gluttony, gluttony would take keeps you from focusing on the things you should Interesting concept there. And that, that is true. I mean, a lot of, we do hear about certain eating disorders that are prompted by those who are dealing with, you know, difficult, stressful times, and they turn to the food for that comfort when they might, they should turn to God uh, for getting through those circumstances. Some, some think about it. Some okay. Think. Yeah, that's interesting. 
right, let's go to this question. What does it mean when the sons of God married the daughters of men? Some people, we've had people on the virtual Bible study before, who try to suggest that this was some sort of supernatural kind of thing where angels came down and mated with mortal human women. Yes. Uh, we had a uh, long, long response about that. Yeah, well yeah. But I, I dug out again here. I dug out some old notes on this. Let me read you my notes on this on this question. In Genesis 6-7, we read of God's gross displeasure with the wickedness of men. It says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I made from the face of the earth, both man and beast, the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Just prior to this announcement, there's a statement that was caused quite a bit of speculation. It says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and took them wise of all which they chose. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Again, that's all from Genesis 6. What does this mean? Who were the sons of God, and where did they come from? Some have guessed that these were angels or heavenly beings of some sort. The theory goes that these beings lusted for and ultimately mated with human women. The mighty men that resulted from these unions are held up as proof that something extra-earthly had occurred. There are some major problems with this view. First, it ascribes human sexual desire to heavenly beings. There's nothing in the scriptures that would support this conclusion. All we know of angels is that they, quote, neither marry nor are given in marriage, Matthew 22, verse 30. Secondly, it diminishes the uniqueness of the virgin birth of Jesus. His case alone stands out as one in which a child was born by some means other than by natural conception. So what's the answer? I think a key verse is Genesis 4.26. It says, quote, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It seems that as human history began to unfold, some men began to make conscious choice to follow God and others did not. Those who, quote, called on the name of the Lord would have been known then as now as, quote, the sons of God. But as time went on, even these men began to be corrupt, including their marriages to wicked mates. Finally, they also were so full of sin that, quote, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And only Noah was, quote, found, only Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's all from Genesis 6. So I think sons of, sons of God were those who had been faithfully serving God, but even they became corrupt and began to marry with the wicked people of the world and... The, the, finally, the only faithful family left was Noah's. All right. I, make, I agree with that interpretation. Now, there is an interesting uh, uh, reference here to giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of men came into the daughters of... Uh, a son of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children to them, and the same became mighty men, which were old. Does it say that the resulting uh, children of the sons of God and the daughters of men were giants? Well... I don't think so necessarily, because whoever those were, they all died in the flood. But there were still giants after the flood. Right. Goliath, David and Goliath happened sure. long after the flood. So the fact, you know, some want to say giants were the product of those heavenly beings mating with human women. But that doesn't bear out, because all of those, whoever they were, would have been wiped out in the flood. But even after the flood, we still read about giants. Okay. All right, uh, Mike, uh, or Chris, I'm sorry, in uh, Georgia says, I do not believe they are fallen angels mating with humans. Act, Matthew 22, verse 30, as you referenced, states that angels do not do that. Therefore, I believe these were humans that married. I've read many theories on this, from angels to men being the descendants of Seth and women descendants of Cain. Not sure about that, but I do know that it was human beings that were married. All right, appreciate yeah. that from Chris. Yes, 233 says it's amazing that is where people will always go, always towards sex. In the story of Ruth, when she took off Boaz's shoes uh, in chapter 3 on the threshing floor, it is seen by many as a sign towards sex, as uncovering the feet and other verses meant this. Forget Boaz's and Ruth's characters. They still believe that something occurred on the threshing floor. I highly doubt that. So he's just saying some people are trying to read into every incident. Some some kind of sexual connotation is not always there for All sure. All right. Uh, now, number seven, Jonathan says, Can we celebrate as one congregation in hundreds of different places via Facebook, etc.? Actually, uh, Jonathan sent me a link, uh, religiousblogs.cnn.com, in which there was this article church on facebook and there was a quote from the article let's make a sanctuary out of the social network that weaves its way in and out of our daily lives already let's invite our peers to stay in their dorm rooms and apartments gather with their friends around a computer and celebrate with us as one congregation in hundreds of different places 
So what? what so about the virtual congregation will replace the brick and mortar congregate, well, so to speak. Uh, I, I got to say, you, you can't do that. You can't do that, really. You can't do that. And uh, the hmm. verse I would use to say that you can't do that, at least one verse I would use, is First Corinthians eleven verse twenty. When you come together, therefore, into one place, he talks about coming together into one place to observe the Lord's Supper. So okay. I, I would say uh, you can't do that. All right. Well, Jeff's got an angle. Jeff's always looking for the angle. Jeff, what's your angle? Um, my question is, what if a few local churches, they meet in a different place? Like, let's say there's a few small churches that can't afford a preacher, but yet one preacher preaches the sermon for all of them. Oh, that's an interesting angle. I was talking with James Buchanan about that today. Uh, this week, I'm sorry, earlier this week. About you, could you do that? Could you maybe have well, like a gospel meeting where the preacher didn't come? Yeah, he, he, I, I was think on a, he was just on a screen. I think that's different. In fact, I do something sort of similar to that. Uh, there's a small church in Michigan where uh, good friends meet. They don't have a regular preacher. I videotape sermons that are preached here and I send it to them. They watch a videotape for the teaching part, the preaching part of their assembly. But I'm not a part of that church, and I'm not a part of that assembly. They're using that as a teaching medium, but they come together into one place to observe the Lord's Supper. You, from 1 Corinthians 11, you've got to come together to observe the Lord's Supper. The, the, the first day of the week assembly requires coming together in one place, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Uh, Chris says, I do not see how we can encourage one another in our song and fellowship via Facebook and other social media. We cannot participate in the Lord's Supper as a congregation if we are separated the scripture teaches and shows examples of the church assembling together. He agrees I, I, with you. I agree, Chris. Now, I will. I, I think that this is a potential uh, challenge and hurdle to overcome in the future, though, as we our, our society becomes more and more isolated. People don't like to get out and actually be in the presence of other people. They'd rather hide behind but a computer God's screen. God's plan somewhere. for the church is that we that we do interact with one mm-hmm. another, other than just reading a text on a screen. But it, it, it seems that our society is going to the point where. Yeah, it's going that way, but but we can't allow it to be so in the church. Okay. Uh, In the chat room, guest 233, I tried posting once on Craigslist with community events. The only response I ever got was other people trying to sell me stuff. That's probably what would happen. Okay. All right. Um, We're just out of time. The last question sort of is, this this is eerie. Does the Bible say anything about life elsewhere in the universe? I... I, uh, uh, Got a couple of notes here. What men have been trying forever to try and find life elsewhere. This says the first dissertation on life somewhere other than the planet Earth seems to have been in 1638, almost 400 years ago, when an English clergyman by the name of John Wilkins released a book titled The Discovery of a World in the Moon. In 1686, Bernard de Fontenelle released a book entitled Conversations on the Plurality of the Worlds, and that was seen as an attack on the Bible. What year was that? 1686. Wow. In 1894, Percival Lovell thought he saw lines on Mars, believed that they were canals constructed by intelligent creatures. Beginning in 1976, the United States spent billions of dollars sending two Viking spacecraft to Mars to find life. And in the 80s and 90s, over $100 million was spent on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, S-E-T-I, SETI, you may have heard of that, to scan the sky for radio waves from other yes. inhabitants of the universe. They, By the way, they just had to shut that down. Oh. Budget cuts. <laughs> they never heard uh, anything, uh, yeah, did they? Yeah. Uh, you know what I think the bottom line answer is? Uh, and Chris says that. I'm going to go with Chris's answer. I think it, I agree. The, the Bible is silent about life elsewhere. I have no problem believing there may be other life in the universe. Perhaps God created intelligent life, but they do not have eternal souls like we do. Bottom line is we do not know. We should focus a majority of our energy on living our life on this earth according to the will of God and teaching as many people as we can. I think that's right. The Bible is just silent on that. It wouldn't change anything. If if they found, for, let's say they found microbial life on Mars, they, would it change anything about what's taught in the Bible? No, but they think it will. It, I think, it, I, think it I think there is uh, the, the motivation behind that is so they can prove that, oh, well, if it, it, that proves that, or somehow it would validate the theory of evolution to them, I think, if they find life somewhere else. That, that's but, probably why they're working hard to do that. I think it is. But who cares? It doesn't doesn't validate the theory of evolution if they find life elsewhere. That's right. All right. Well, we're out of time. Inter- uh, that, that, we said it was going to be rapid fire, Jacob, and it was. All right. It was, and it was a, a good discussion. Some 
good questions, some questions that uh, we needed to consider. Yeah. So appreciate so our keep send, and keep sending in your questions, and we'll do we do this with some regularity. We'll do this. Uh, so let us know. All right. Well, good discussion tonight, uh, Jeff. Thank you for being behind the controls. Appreciate uh, your help tonight, and uh, Dad, thank you for your time. Thank you. And Enjoyed it. Thank you for being. Uh, what about next week, Thanksgiving? We're going to have. A, I've already. Uh, you're going to be uh, dispossessed. Dispossessed in another place. That sounds uh, bad. Uh, and I've already got Jim Walsh, uh, who's agreed to join me. And I think we're going to talk about Christians and politics. It better be good, because there's going to be a lot of tryptophan going around. Yeah, there you go. And so we're going to keep everybody awake. So be here next week, uh, Thanksgiving evening, uh, for uh, the regularly scheduled Virtual Bible Study. We appreciate you being here and look forward to you being back this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.